Welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a strategy to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification Policy with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, The Environmental Justice Impacts of the Hydrogen Economy. There is a buzz around hydrogen these days, and it's only getting louder. The bipartisan infrastructure law included $8 billion to develop regional clean hydrogen hubs across America, and the U.S. Department of Energy has made carbon-free hydrogen part of their strategy for achieving President Biden's goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. In addition, natural gas and electric utilities in more than a dozen states are introducing hydrogen blending proposals for buildings and in natural gas plants. Energy Innovation released a research report a few months ago that found that such proposals are fraught with economic, logistical, and safety challenges and would result in minimal greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Although green hydrogen has potential to reduce emissions from more carbon-intensive sectors of the economy, including heavy industry, other end uses and applications are problematic. Furthermore, and quite importantly, there's an aspect of hydrogen that has been overlooked to date how its widespread deployment could impact environmental justice and frontline communities. Here with me today to examine hydrogen from this important lens and discuss these impacts are three experts on the topic. First, we have Abby Ramanan, who's a project manager at Clean Energy States Alliance and Clean Energy Group. In her dual roles, Abby specializes in equitable low-income solar policy, managing the Solar with Justice project, and she leads the Hydrogen Information and Public Education project. She also supports the Resilient Power Project to provide solar and battery storage to communities that need it most. Abby holds a master's degree in energy policy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University, as well as a bachelor's degree in international studies from American University. Welcome to the show, Abby. Thanks so much. Next, we have Victor Davila, who is the community organizer and action program manager at the Point Community Development Corporation. Victor has been a Bronx-based community organizer for over 16 years and attended the University of Vermont. Uh, Victor's a co-founder of the Environmental Education Skate Group, EcoWriters, and a member of the New York Renews Organizing Committee. Welcome to the show, Victor. It is fantastic to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. And last but not least, we have Daniel Chu, energy planner for the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, an urban designer interested in civic involvement in the built environment design and preservation. He has experience working at NYC 2030 District, focusing on building efficiency and heat pump retrofits in Brooklyn and at Urban Design Forum Reporting infrastructure maintenance, and global zoning practices. Daniel's also held held various positions with the New School, where he received also a Master of Science in Design and Urban Ecologies and a BA in Urban Studies. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Good to be here. Hey, everyone. So before we dive into the topic at hand, uh, I'd love to have our uh, listeners learn a little bit more about the work that each of you do and you know, you're doing such great work in each of your respective fields. And uh, so I'll start with you, Abby. Just tell us a little bit more about what you're doing right now and something you're focused on uh, at this moment. Sure. So um, I'll focus on my work at Clean Energy Group, which is a national nonprofit. Um, our primary focus is just on ensuring that all communities benefit from a clean energy system that builds 
wealth and resilience through equitable access to and ownership of clean energy technologies um, that do not harm the health and well-being of those communities. Um, in terms of what we're focused on right now, I'm going to plug two of our efforts. Um, the first is our Phase Out Peakers initiative, which is an effort to collaborate, collaborate with and uh, support the work of local communities and environmental justice groups trying to retire harmful, polluting fossil fuel peaker plants. One of our biggest efforts in this stain is in New York City through the Peak Coalition, and I'll let Daniel and Victor talk about that in more detail since um, both Nija and The Point are also part of Peak. And then the other effort I want to plug is our Technical Assistance Fund, which I help manage. Um, and this is a um, award system where we provide small grants to cover pre-development feasibility analyses for community-serving institutions who are looking to add uh, resilient power systems. So primarily that means solar and battery storage to their site as a means of having access to clean and reliable backup power in the event of climate related outages or, or otherwise um, grid instability uh, related outages. Um, and I'd encourage any of your listeners if they um, have any community institutions that they think could um, benefit from our technical assistance fund or are interested in getting solar and storage on their site, um, I recommend they check out our website and apply. We have a very easy application system and we always love to serve as many folks as we can through that process. Wow, that's awesome. That's really, really important work these days, absolutely, and very relevant to so many things happening right now. Uh, Daniel, how about you? Tell us a bit more about the work you do and something you're focused on. Hey, so the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance is a nonprofit citywide membership network linking grassroots organizations from low-income neighborhoods and communities of color in their struggle for environmental justice. We empower our members like Victor um, at the point um, to organize and advocate for improved environmental conditions and against inequitable environmental burdens by coordinating different campaigns designed to inform city and state policies. So in my role as energy planner, one of my main focus uh, is on the Peak Coalition, as Abby previously mentioned. It's made up of uh, Nija, uh, The Point, Uprose, which is another one of our members, Clean Energy Group, and New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. And our focus is really to retire and transition all of New York City's peaker plants into renewable energy and battery storage as soon as possible. And one of the things we're focused on right now is that recently we published a study with the New York Power Authority uh, determining the feasibility of retiring all of these peakers by 2030 and replacing them with battery storage. And right now there is an RFP process going on to encourage developers to apply with NIPA to put battery storage on their sites and make sure we can shut down and transition off these peaker plants as soon as possible with no reliability concerns and hopefully by 2030. Great. Uh, and Similarly, very uh, important work. Also for our listeners, the term peakers is a term often used among the energy uh, wonks out there, but for those unfamiliar with the term, it refers to natural gas peaking uh, power plants that tend to run during the periods of high, high demand, uh, usually uh, in the summer when a lot of AC is running, uh, but occasionally there are winter peakers out there. Um, but that's just kind of a quick terminology for folks. Um, great. And Victor, how about yourself? Tell us a little bit more about the work you do and something that you're working on right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So once again, I'm Victor Davila. I'm a community organizer with The Point CDC. The, the Point CDC is a 27-year strong 
a local community organization that tries to deal with environmental and social justice issues through an arts and cultures lens. Uh, we try to make sure that the people who are fighting on the front line for these issues are the community members who will experience the front line issues. So our focus tends to be on trying to utilize our communities as assets for their own change. Uh, the point is a member of the Pika Coalition, and within the Pika Coalition, we tend to focus in on, like, how do we make sure that we are translating the very complex issues that we find here to everyday people, which, like, the majority of the population could not and should not sit in on how boring these conversations can go, but they deserve to know exactly what's happening in their communities. Um, but yeah, so that's, we're currently trying to deal with uh, Pika plants right now, but another core focus that we have um, that relates to these issues is we are trying to ensure alongside New Yorker News that the uh, a recent bill that was passed called the CLCPA, which is the Climate Leadership and Community Protections Act, and it sets standards for emissions in New York City uh, so that we are trying to hit a carbon neutral point uh, by I think like 2080, although that's, I personally believe, way too long of a timeline to get all this done. But we are trying to help push that, and things like Pika help kind of prove that point to life, where we're getting to see all the actual kind of live time effects that having these dirty facilities impact local communities with the emissions they produce. Right. Uh, very important work, and I'm you know so gra I'm so grateful, folks like yourself are out there doing this work. Um, and as you say, Victor, it is hard when you're in the energy space and know. Uh, you know, the nature of the regulatory world, the nature of the policy and legislative world, and how time intensive it is to participate meaningfully. And so the work you're doing, and really all of you are doing, uh, to bring critical information to communities that are affected by decisions who can't necessarily participate themselves is, uh, is so paramount to, to change. Um, just out of curiosity, how many natural gas peaker plants does New York City have uh, and surrounding areas? I think the rough number off the top of my head is around 20, although I think the numbers are dropping uh, month by month. That's a lot. We have here in Salt Lake City, I believe, uh, I know at least one, possibly two, um, and that feels like too many. So. <laughs> yeah, I think it's at least around 15 in New York City. Fascinating. Well, we're going to dig into this and uh, help build the the interconnection between a gas peak plant work and hydrogen. And um, Abby, I'm going to start with you. You've been really following hydrogen for a few years now. You've authored several great blogs on the topic. And I want you to help set the stage, provide our listeners with a brief overview of hydrogen, you know, what it is, why it's gaining so much attention, and the context for hydrogen relative to uh, the work you're doing on natural gas. Sure. Um, this is a pretty uh, meaty topic, so I'll try and be as brief as I can with my explanation of um, kind of the background around hydrogen. Um, but so hydrogen is one of the most abundant natural elements on Earth. But um, an important thing to remember is that hydrogen gas, the fuel, uh, it is produced, it's not extracted. So number one thing, you need resources, you need electricity to generate any hydrogen fuel that is being used in the power grid, in uh, industrial processes, anything that is all produced hydrogen. It's not extracted from the air or anything like that. 
Uh, right now, today, 95% of hydrogen gas is still produced through natural gas uh, through a process called steam methane reformation, um, which is a process in which methane from natural gas is heated with steam to produce a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen. Um, that is the traditional way that hydrogen's been produced um, throughout the last several decades, um, and that hydrogen's mostly been going towards industrial processes like steel making or cement making. Um, and that hydrogen is in the kind of rainbow of hydrogen colors. That's what we call gray hydrogen. Um, there's also what we call blue hydrogen, which is made through that same steam methane reformation process or SMR process, but with carbon capture technology uh, included in the process to capture some of those carbon emissions. Uh, another production method for hydrogen is electrolysis, uh, which is uh, in which an electric current is run through water to separate the molecules into hydrogen and oxygen. If that electrolysis is powered by renewable energy, that process is carbon emissions free, and that is what we call green hydrogen. There are other colors of hydrogen um, that are sometimes talked about, but I'm not really going to touch on those since they're not used very often in the United States at the least. Um, those last two types of hydrogen production that I talked about, the blue hydrogen and the green hydrogen, are really the reason behind kind of the hydrogen hype and, and the push that we're seeing from the fossil fuel industry around hydrogen. Um, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen are often lumped together under the umbrella term of clean hydrogen. And I'm using air quotes that you can't see, but um, I, neither of these types of hydrogen are actually clean. Um, blue hydrogen in particular has a lot of carbon emissions associated with the process. So number one, carbon capture technology is not at the scale or level it needs to be to adequately capture the majority of carbon emissions from the SMR process. And most life cycle emissions analyses of blue hydrogen that are looking at its carbon footprint don't even address the upstream em uh, emissions you get from increased use of methane uh, through the increased use of natural gas, the uh, power you need to power the carbon capture technology itself, in addition to, um, again, the electricity that you're using to produce the hydrogen in the first place. Um, if you factor in all of those additional um, increases in power use, as well as the inefficiencies in the carbon capture technology, the carbon footprint or the greenhouse gas footprint of blue hydrogen is actually worse than burning coal. Uh, which is pretty bad. Um, so the idea of it being clean is um, just a complete falsehood. Green hydrogen um, is a little better in that regard. Um, there isn't carbon associated with the production process, but hydrogen itself has greenhouse gas emissions potential. Hydrogen um, has been shown when it's in the atmosphere to actually have an increased greenhouse gas impact um, in the short term compared to CO2. And those ramifications are not ones that have been really studied yet. So if we were to start using even green hydrogen throughout kind of uh, the power system, it is highly likely that we would actually see an increase in warming um, just from the uh, release of, of fugitive hydrogen emissions in the first place. Um, beyond kind of just the, the greenhouse gas emissions issues, um, there's a whole host of, uh, you know, public health impacts that we'll get into a little bit later. But, um, you know, this idea of them being clean fuel um, is really what's been behind the push from 
the fossil fuel industry and also unfortunately now a lot of state and federal messaging around hydrogen is this idea that we can use it to decarbonize um, existing natural gas infrastructure, existing fossil fuel infrastructure, because it's a gas that can be kind of just plugged into the natural gas system and we can just burn it and it'll be emissions-free and everything will be great. Um, and that is kind of the overall message that we've been seeing. Um, the way the clean energy group got involved in hydrogen was through our um, phase out peakers initiative because we started seeing more and more um, peaker plants saying that um, they would switch to hydrogen at some point in the future and that would reduce their emissions. And um, based off just the kind of simple research we were able to do, that is completely false. And so um, it's really just being used as a kind of boondoggle to um, promote this idea of, of being able to easily decarbonize the uh, the grid without actually having to change any existing infrastructure, but um, that's actually not the case. And uh, even if you were to just inject uh, green hydrogen gas into a natural gas plant, you wouldn't even see um, a, a reduction in carbon emissions because uh, just of the energy density in hydrogen, um, if you were to burn it You'd, you you it's, it wouldn't be a one-to-one -one reduction in carbon emissions. It would actually be about half. So if you were to replace 15% of the natural gas in a plant with 15% hydrogen, you'd only see about a 7% reduction in carbon emissions. So it's not even a um, impactful way to decarbonize natural gas to begin with. Um, it's really just being used as a way to extend the life of fossil fuel assets without um, really digging deeper into the ramifications of burning and combusting hydrogen, as well as producing it through these supposedly clean methods. Really helpful overview, Abby. Thank you so much. And you touched on all the, the key points. One other point to mention uh, for those who maybe don't have their high school chemistry class fresh in your brain, hydrogen is colorless, it is odorless, it's highly flammable, and when burned, uh, it emits mostly water, but it also emits various oxides of nitrogen or NOx pollution, which is a known precursor to respiratory illnesses and premature death and lots of other um, air pollution problems. Um, Victor, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I guess um, I wanted to add another kind of point on that really excellently uh, summarized list of like why hydrogen is not the, not quite the solution it seems to be. But also another part of the conversation I think is widely ignored is that these kind of incremental switches to kind of fossil fuel, but with extra steps, those changes should have been happening 30 years ago, right? We don't have the time to do that anymore. The fossil fuel industry had a choice to start adapting and changing direction 30 years ago, they chose to go into the route of extreme propagandization and extreme lobbying. And now they have to pay for those decisions. Now we don't have time to do a nice clean transition that considers them and their infrastructure. Right? We have to move into radical decisions because radical issues are going to hit us. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, a lot of these proposals that are being presented are... Uh, you know, trying to get to not even 15%, but like 5% uh, blending with natural gas, or I've seen even 1% <laughs> blending with natural gas. And so it does call into question how long will any sort of longer term 
meaningful transition take? Uh, and I think as your as at the point you made, Victor is spot on. It's it's too long. We don't have that time. Um, so Abby, yeah, back to you. Um, so so we're seeing this uh, growing enthusiasm for hydrogen. And i um, curious what trends you're seeing right now. I know Clean Energy Group works across the country uh, and you're working with a lot of communities in different states. So what, what trends are you seeing? Yeah, I'd say um, in terms of kind of trends, there, there's two big buckets. There's um, efforts by utilities, as you were saying, Sarah, to um, you know inject 1% hydrogen or 5% hydrogen into their uh, existing natural gas infrastructure as sort of a, a means of meeting their carbon emissions goals or you know whatever other um, goals they might have under each state. Um, so for example, I know uh, NGR, uh, one of the New Jersey utilities has uh, just implemented a 5% blend of uh, 5% blend of hydrogen, 95% natural gas in their residential uh, natural gas pipelines. And there's uh, like probably over 30 proposals like that in the country. Um, and those proposals are um, exactly as Victor said, they're, they're just a, a means of trying to buy time. And there's not even, there is no glide path uh, to go from say 5% hydrogen to 100% hydrogen in a natural gas pipeline because one of the other issues around hydrogen is that um, it's a very small molecule. And if you were to put it in a high pressure cycling pipeline, so any sort of natural gas pipeline, um, it is actually very, very likely to uh, increase the likelihood of ruptures or cracks in that pipeline. So um, the reason most of these utilities are only starting at very, very small blends of hydrogen is because they actually can't blend more than that without risking uh, rupture or explosions in their pipelines. Um, if they were to try and uh, increase the, the amount of hydrogen in their pipelines, um, they would likely have to replace all of that infrastructure and that would be uh, borne out on the backs of ratepayers who would end up paying um, you know, a lot of money to uh, replace those pipelines uh, just so that these utilities can keep running um, on, on hydrogen and natural gas. The other kind of big trend we're seeing is federally. Um, so the Department of Energy just put out a funding opportunity uh, for what they're calling their Regional Hydrogen Hubs Initiative this is a piece of the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, it's about $8 billion in funding for four regional hydrogen hubs. Um, there's a lot of issues around this proposal. Um, I know Clean Energy Group, as well as several of our, our fellow members in the Peak Coalition and Earth Justice, all submitted comments regarding um, this proposal because uh, one of the most problematic parts of it is that uh, in the law, it is required that at least one of those hydrogen hubs be uh, blue hydrogen, which, as I mentioned before, has a lot of issues around it. Um, and then there's supposed to be one that's green hydrogen and then um, one that's uh, to two others that are um, other types of production methods. Um, this federal funding is um, a huge opportunity for states. And we're seeing a lot of states who might not have otherwise been looking at hydrogen um, start putting together hydrogen hub proposals uh, because, I mean, it's a lot of money, right? It's it's probably close to $2 billion for a state if they were to um, win a hydrogen hub. And so um, what we're seeing there is 
there's there's definitely been um, pushback from environmental justice communities in several of these um, regional hydrogen hub proposals. Um, there's one that New Mexico put together several months ago uh, that received a lot of pushback from environmental justice advocates in the area because it was looking at specifically blue hydrogen and um, really didn't address any of the other sort of environmental justice implications around hydrogen use. Um, as you mentioned, Sarah, the NOx is a huge issue. Um, you know, any of these hydrogen hub proposals, if they're going to be burning hydrogen, are going to have an outsized impact on environmental justice communities because of the huge amount of NOx that hydrogen emits when it's combusted. Um, despite that, I mean, these proposals are going to keep moving forward. And um, while we, I know many of us in the environmental justice community have um, met with DOE to really push for uh, regulations and um, feedback loops that allow environmental justice communities uh, in the places where these hydrogen hubs will be located to be involved in the process and to um, be able to actively impact um, where the hub is sited and, and what um, types of hydrogen production it's actually going to be focused on. Um, a lot of it remains to be seen. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to have to keep an eye on it, but it, it is really disappointing that, um, you know, we have this, this huge amount of investment in a fuel that um, unduly impacts the health and, and well-being of environmental justice communities and just helps, you know, fossil fuel assets continue to linger well past um, their useful life and, and well past, um, you know, the life that they, they should be allowed to live given their, their impact on communities um, already. Yeah, really, really good point and uh, absolutely alarming how much money is going to be flowing to hydrogen here in the next little while. Um, so just to kind of simplify, the hydrogen proposals that we're seeing coming largely from utilities are either directed to blending with natural gas to be used in buildings uh, for heat uh, and cooking fuel. And the other is blending with natural gas to be used in power plants. And both are problematic for, for similar reasons. Um, Daniel, I know you've been working on a lot of stuff on cooperative housing and seeing the momentum for hydrogen and for heating in homes. And curious to get your thoughts on, you know, is there community awareness on these potential concerns with NOx pollution and other safety concerns? What are you what are you seeing in your work with communities? I think more and more people are definitely becoming aware of the public health impacts of hydrogen. Um, I know just as an example, um, National Group presented at a community board in Williamsburg and Greenpoint, which are two New York City neighborhoods in Brooklyn, uh, sometime last month. And during that meeting, um, they brought up a proposal in which they could blend hydrogen into their gas system that they supply to these homes um, that the community board members live in. And there was a lot of pushback from the community board, not only around the different kind of clean energy impacts that hydrogen might take away from other resources, but also around the public health issues. And folks in the community board are very aware of the NOx impacts that hydrogen uh, can generate in uh, blending hydrogen into the heating and uh, heating and gas system. So even though I think there needs to be more awareness around the, the public health impacts of combusting hydrogen, more and more communities are definitely becoming aware um, of the, the issues that, that are there. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that. And that's uh, no doubt due to the great work you guys are doing on the ground. Uh, Victor, how about you in the community organizing and outreach you're doing? Is this on the radar? Are people aware of it? And uh, are there concerns that are being raised? I don't think I could be here if it wasn't definitely on people's <laughs> radar. Like it's it's a thing where the difference between knowing and understanding is I think where environmental justice signs and lives and shines. Um, I'm from Hunts Point in the South Bronx. That is literally where the term environmental justice got coined. I, I it was a trip for me to like go to school and college in Vermont and then have to study my own community. Like that wasn't weird and traumatizing, right? these issues are felt by community members. They understand these issues intimately. They may not know the root causes always, right? The point has been trying to act as a bridge between community members' issues and root causes for its entire existence. So as community members learn more and more about indoor pollution, they are also being drawn into all the other additional threats they have to keep out an eye for. And so, yeah, community members have always understood what harms them. They've always understood that most of the people they know have asthma, right? And that, and it's to a degree where culturally it's not significant, right? In, a, in any other child in any other community, having asthma would be seen as an issue as opposed to the norm, as it is in Hunts Point. So they, they know the effects of NOx and SOx. It's about making sure that we continue to give them the correct information to identify where they have to put that complaint because it's towards the city. Right. And uh, is your organization, as you, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, your organization is really facilitating that transfer of uh, information both from decision-making bodies to the community and then raising the concerns among the community members and bringing that back to the decision makers. How's that going? How's that process playing out? Is it having an effect? I think the process is playing out and having effect just because in order to do that work, you have to know the community. Like a lot of, when people see like orgs throw like block parties, for instance, they don't understand that that is a tool to make sure that we are in tune with our communities. It's very much a what have you done for me lately? And that's fair. It should be what have you done for me lately? If we're doing our job correctly, we are making sure that community members understand and know what is happening around them and also drawing them into spaces by making them understand that we are benefit in other ways, right? Like it's a struggle and it's always going to be a struggle because things were kind of designed to be kept out of their reach, right? Like we, these, you can explain in much simpler terms all these issues and you can make it more public and more digestible. It's not a difficult thing to hire someone who can do that, but the city really does. Right? And that framework pushes people out of the process, right? Because there are families in our communities that don't have the time or capacity to pay attention to these issues, right? They have immediate threats to their daily lives, right? When you are focused on survival, it's hard to focus on the macro, right? Micro is everything. So we meet all community members on the micro whenever we can, give them immediate benefits on the micro. And then also while we are handing them things they need, we tell them what's up. Sounds like a really great strategy and uh, very, very important uh, for so many reasons. Um, Daniel, with respect to the work you do on broader building decarbonization pathways, uh, what are the concerns you're seeing? So there's obviously concerns around hydrogen blending for heating and heating in homes and buildings, but I imagine that there are other concerns related to exacerbating high energy burdens, uh, you know, if we're going to shift to electric as the alternative, 
you know, how do we ensure people can sustain uh, affordable rates and affordable bills? How, how does all this kind of fit into the work uh, you're doing on this on this front? Yeah, I think one of the most simple way to exemplify the cost difference between hydrogen slash natural gas and electrifying a building is an efficiency factor. So we know that air source heat pumps can be as much as 500% efficient in uh, heating and cooling a home, whereas hydrogen and natural gas, you know, for heating purposes may only be 30% efficient. So that is a, a, a large difference in terms of the amount of energy you need to set your home to a certain temperature, which means that when you're requiring more energy to achieve that purpose, you're spending more money to pay for that energy. So I think the efficiency factor is definitely something huge uh, in terms of blending hydrogen and the continued use of natural gas in buildings. And the sooner we can electrify buildings and make sure that their building envelope is tight enough that we will not have any uh, additional leakages um, from heating or cooling at home is definitely critical in the work that we do. And the other thing we're starting to see, um, especially in New York, is that back in January, uh, a lot of folks receive extraordinarily high content bills, as much as three times their regular uh, electricity utility bill amount. Um, some folks had an electricity bill as much as $1,800 or uh, $2,000 just for a three-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, which is a crazy amount of cost for the energy using. And really, that boils down to a huge increase in the supply side cost of energy. And what happened is that folks who subscribe to clean energy to heat and cool their homes um, through Con Ed actually did not see an increase in their electricity bills. So it is critical at this moment now that to achieve a stable and predictable rate um, that we're paying for our utility bills, we switch to clean energy to power our homes as soon as possible so that we don't have these kind of rate fluctuations that, you know, if you are tight on money in one month and you suddenly see an increase in your energy bills, you will not be able to pay them. And even though New York City and New York State has great programs such as HEAP um, and other calling programs that assist you in paying those bills, a lot of times, you know, it takes extra effort, it takes extra energy um, from your personal energy and takes extra time for you to take out of your day to apply for these assistance, which means that we really want to prevent this from happening in the first place. And really from a comprehensive perspective, both eliminating fossil fuel burden from an energy generation point that feeds to your homes and making sure that your homes are using your, your energy the most efficient way possible are kind of the two roads we're tackling at the same time, uh, not only through Peak Coalition, but through all the other campaigns that we work on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, beyond the public health concerns and the cost concerns, um, Abby, maybe you can speak a little bit to some of the safety concerns. You mentioned that blending hydrogen and gas uh, can have uh, impacts on the pipeline system. What about uh, appliances and what about the um, in-home combustion of a blend of gas and hydrogen? Are there safety and other concerns to be aware of? Yeah, there are um, huge safety concerns to be aware of um, if hydrogen is being piped into homes. I mean, the first is, um, Sarah, as you said up top, hydrogen is a colorless and odorless gas, and it burns really, really hot. So uh, in terms of safety just there, there's a lot of concerns around um, if you were to turn on you know, a, a hydrogen gas stove, um, there'd be just some, some serious safety concerns. But beyond that, um, an insurance company in the UK actually recently published a study where they looked at um, the rate of uh, domestic explosions and injuries from if we were if 
the UK was to switch all um, home appliances from natural gas to hydrogen, and it they found that it would lead to four times as many domestic explosions and subsequent injuries. Um, part of that is because, as I mentioned earlier, hydrogen is just a really small molecule, so it's very, very easy for it to escape whatever pipe it's or storage container it's in, and it tends to then collect in kind of uh, high up corners of homes and buildings. Uh, and then all it really requires is a tiny spark and you'll get um, a significant explosion that will be um, even more volatile than a natural gas explosion because hydrogen also burns much, uh, much hotter than natural gas. And also there are not appliances available in the market today that are certified to run on any blend of hydrogen. Is that accurate? Correct. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah. If, if, you know, all homes were to switch over to hydrogen today, everyone would need to replace their stoves, their water heaters, um, any other appliances. And those appliances don't exist on the market. Unlike electric appliances, which do. So I always find it interesting that the arc, one of the core arguments against electrification is, well, people are going to have to spend all this money to switch out their appliances. But the alternative that's being presented is effectively not only more dangerous, more uh costly, but also you're going to have to switch out your appliances. <laughs> so, um, so Victor, I'm curious, you work with a lot of the local politicians and, and I think legislators as well. What are you hearing from them in response to the concerns being raised uh, from the community members? I think broadly in the Bronx, we have had a kind of very long time political machine recently break down a bit where we have some of the most progressive candidates that we've had in New York for some time now. And we are seeing climate champions coming out of these groups. But at the same time, there are key political figures who are moving in ways that are either at this point, given the clear outcry for the need for climate legislation, and given the clear demand for shifts in our infrastructure for the sake of public health, are stalling either out of incompetence or criminality. And I am I don't think I don't think it's wild to say that. Right? At, when we are facing down death's door, when we are facing down who knows how many more hurricanes, as they get worse and worse each year. What possible reason do we have not to make the bold changes we need to make? Right? When moving into the future means surviving, it's a silly thing not to want that. So we have nothing but admiration for our political champions who are pushing and helping us move climate legislation forward. And we would love to continue to educate those uh, who seem to need more convincing because their futures are at stake just as well as everyone else's. Absolutely. So what what do you what's kind of the vision for the community when it comes to clean energy and and really shaping a future that doesn't uh, exacerbate climate harm and pollution and health impacts? I think I'm, I'll let Daniel speak to some of the most specifics about peaks and what we want to see peaks doing involving like battery storage, but in general, a, a you speak with infrastructure. Right, infrastructure is a language. If it wasn't a language, we wouldn't have like Notre Dame, right? And what the city says to youth in the Bronx and says to adults in the Bronx is that you are unwanted and undeserving, right? A switch to clean infrastructure, 
a switch to green infrastructure at a minimum helps reset the scale to zero. Because for too many decades, the city has treated the Bronx like an abandoned child it did not want. Right? We have been burned down, gassed down, policed out, attacked, gentrified, and we have still stood. And this is an issue that will wipe us all out if we don't get ahead of it. But it's going to hurt us first and most tangibly. Right? It is the least the city can do to make up for decades of harm and neglect. Well put. And I really like that uh, quote, infrastructure is a language, and you're so right with that statement. Um, Daniel, do you want to share more of the specifics around some of the technologies and or programs that you guys are working to put in place? Yeah, I know Victor mentioned um, the work of PEAK, but I really want to say that the work of PEAK, along with all the other work that uh, we do at NIJA and throughout our member organizations, really is not about shutting down uh, power plants, but more really about building up renewable energy and energy storage as a replacement for the old and polluting technologies that we currently have. Um, we are not advocating that we use less power in the future, but we know for a fact that we're going to use more power and we believe and we know both from a technical, legal, and um, community perspective, that we can achieve uh, more power usage by powering them with renewable energy and storage solutions. Um, I mentioned at the start uh, of the podcast about NIPA's uh, battery storage RFP that's issuing out right now. Um, I know Victor at the point um, and Uprose in Brooklyn, which is another one of our member organizations, and several other organizations throughout New York are building up community distributed generation in um, their facilities or renting facilities that are generating, you know, solar panels, um, you know, sometimes up to four megawatts of power, which is a tremendous amount of power just by a community organization. At the same time, we're always engaged in different levels of policy, including offshore wind development to make sure that these kind of developments really benefit communities that have been disproportionately harmed by power plants in the past. So that when renewable energy comes into New York City and, and all the environmental communities in the future, the, the ones that see benefit first and the ones that see the most benefits uh, are going to be the environmental communities that we work with and work for. That makes sense. and. Uh... You know, important messages to, I imagine, repeat over and over and over again <laughs> in the spaces you guys are working. Um, to that end, uh, I want to hear from all of you. What are the key messages that you really want decision makers to be aware of and understand, not just on hydrogen necessarily, but on kind of the clean energy vision and the future? And um, Abby, I'll, I'll start with you. Oh my gosh, that's a, a really big ask to uh, to drop on me <laughs> i'm sure you're up to the task <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll do my best um i think really just I, we want to make sure the folks are aware of the consequences of um supporting these these hydrogen proposals and um just furthering fossil fuel infrastructure i i think um both victor and daniel have made really good points about just the impact of the existing uh, fossil fuel infrastructure has had on communities for decades. And furthering the life of those assets, um, whether it's through hydrogen or, or other means, is condemning those communities to decades of further harm. And, you know, just really weighing that um, when they're um, looking at these proposals, when they're being confronted by lobbyists, um, is, is, I think, just the most important thing, because um, 
you know, who are we to condemn these communities to keep waiting for clean air and to keep dealing with the impacts of um, respiratory illness and um, heart disease uh, when we have solutions in place um, to provide clean energy technologies for everyone? I mean, I think the trade-off with hydrogen is is really, really powerful. We have, you know, solar and wind and battery storage, uh, and those technologies are ready to be scaled and ready to be deployed at scale now. And, um, you know, why are we wasting funding and, and resources on uh, a, a technology that's going to, um, you know, push us back from our climate goals and, and just uh, continue to further harm? I, you know, it, it's a huge trade-off and it's not one that I think any of us are willing to make. Excellent. Uh, Victor, how about you? What are the core messages you really want decision makers to hear and understand um, on these topics? I think broadly, I, I think folks are doing a genuine good job at trying to get the information to them. Right? I want them to listen because hearing is different. Right? I want them to understand and process what all this information means as it regards not only their communities, but them. Like maybe this, this may be more of the Bronx in me than I'd like to admit. But the reality is that when it comes to our when it comes to our folks who are already doing the work for us, already here yelling alongside us, acting like the avatars of the community they're supposed to be, my message to them would definitely be to keep pushing and get more aggressive about it. Right? To our champions, to so the folks who are going to stand by us and make sure that they are they won't have to say that they stood by and did nothing. Keep going. Right? Because effort matters. Right? Even if it wanes, even if you're tired, that effort matters, right? If you can mitigate burnout, do that. But ultimately, your capacity to push against people who don't have our best interests at heart is important. And for folks who need to get that education, please listen to Like, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to lobby with you. We'd love to make sure that you are on board with us. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and this is the part that's a little bit of the Bronx in me. You will not thrive with fossil fuel companies. They will let you drown with us. Yeah. Daniel, how about you? I want to start by saying that the analogy that I'm about to make is not original. I heard it from someone else uh, from Europe. But I want to say that, you know, renewable energy and better storage really is water and hydrogen is champagne. And you want to drink water and you don't want to drink champagne every day. And you certainly don't take a bath with champagne. Uh, so when we're thinking about hydrogen as a resource, we know they're valuable in places like, you know, industrial feedstock, uh, potentially valuable in heavy industries and shipping and a long-term battery, long-term storage of energy. But we don't want to use it everywhere. If we're putting hydrogen in buildings and power plants and putting them everywhere else, really we're wasting this precious resource that we can use for really good uh, purposes and if, you know, if we're subsidizing them when we don't even have enough water going around, why are we making champagne? Really excellent analogy. I like that. Although I do like champagne, but, <laughs> but yes. Love it, but. But you know, water is more important. Water is life. Champagne is nice to have. Um, and yeah, to your point, I think, Daniel, that's a really, really important takeaway for our, both our listeners as well as decision makers. And that is, uh, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about the broader decarbonization tool set that we have, 
Hydrogen is a great tool for a certain subset of end uses and applications that we don't have other tools necessarily for. And so we should really be prioritizing green hydrogen for those end uses first and foremost, ahead of any other end uses and applications and particularly any dead ends that we know are going to be, as, as I think one of you said, boondoggles. And the other thing to keep in mind is that if we are intending to use green hydrogen for all sectors of our economy and all possible end uses, that's going to require five to six times more renewable energy than would otherwise be needed to just meet clean grid decarbonization goals. And if you think about that from the standpoint of uh, land use and timing and logistics and the current challenges that we have with connecting enough clean energy to the grid, that poses a substantial barrier to decarbonizing the economy on a timescale needed for climate stability. So just another thing to add to the mix and for decision makers to really keep in mind. Um, Well, guys, this is such a great conversation, and I really actually want to learn so much more about the work you're each doing and just really applaud the excellent work. Um, We're winding down our time, so I want to end on a high note and ask each of you to share what what are the most exciting community-generated solutions that you're seeing or working on uh, that are helping to address the trifecta of environmental justice concerns equity, and climate change. And uh, Victor, I'll, I'll start with you. I, we are starting to see kind of a hyperdrive into the mutual aid world happening that I think I haven't seen in my lifetime. Um, and that's, I think, driven by the fact that we are at a point where community understands that it is competent. Right? When government is not competent, community understands that it can be competent. And competency is everything. Right When we start building community gardens, community CSAs, trying to figure out where we can potentially build out local solar plants, where we can potentially build out cooling stations for our own community. But we're trying to develop, like the point right now is trying to develop a Wi-Fi network that is free, co- covers most of Hunts Point eventually. We're getting more and more buildings to agree to house our, our routers and our bouncers. And should an emergency happen, these things are designed to act as a closed network. So that even if the internet shuts down, people can still communicate on an emergency website housed on a PNK. The community is competent, right? So long as we let community develop and kind of self-actualize about annoying interruptions from people who have no interest in their well-being whatsoever, then community will thrive. And the more government shows its incompetence, the more community has a responsibility to aggressively bear theirs. So I think that's what excites me. Every time I see community projects that are mutual aid, it is just a sign that we don't actually need you if you're going to hurt us. That's a really cool uh, project. I have not heard about that, but that's awesome. And so critical in the era of uh, resilience. We need to be more resilient on every front, not just energy. Uh, and certainly our interconnectivity with the wider world and communications reliant on uh, internet is is p- part of that puzzle. Abby, how about you? Anything exciting that you're really stoked on and seeing out there in the work you're doing? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of the projects that we're seeing uh, that we're getting to help with through our technical assistance fund um, are just really inspiring and really great examples of how um, 
community-serving institutions, community-based organizations, you know, like Victor said, you know, the community helps one another. And uh, when we're able to empower those uh, sites with solar and battery storage so that they can stay on during a climate outage or um, when the grid goes down um, and they're able to, you know, distribute food aid and, and provide outlets for folks to charge their phones or keep their medications cold. Um, that's a really great example of the power of a distributed energy system and, um, you know, an example of the empowerment that we don't really get to see on the existing kind of centralized energy system. And so I'm really just excited to see um, more of, of that kind of decentralized energy um, play into the empowerment of, of communities who are already, community serving institutions who are already doing this work and, um, you know, just giving them even more power and capacity to do that. I love the play on words there too. <laughs> um, awesome. Daniel, how about you? I'm going to cheat a little bit by combining what Victor said and what Abby said. I really think community has the power and, you know, distributed energy is the future. So we want to combine community power and distributed energy. And we really want to think about how we can build up energy democracy in the future. And by energy democracy, I mean, the community has a control and the power to say how their energy is being generated, where their energy comes from and how they're being used. And really, if we can achieve that in, you know, the next five, 10 years, um, I know in New York, the CLCPA mandates that by 2040, we need to have an emissions-free grid. And by 2050, we need to have net zero everywhere in New York. Um, if we can achieve that through energy democracy, I think that's going to be really important and shape you know, where our energy direction goes in, in the next decade, if not century. Awesome. Yeah. And that's not cheating. That's just a good answer. <laughs> um, I'll add to the mix. I, I'm really excited about the fact that the Infrastructure Act, despite the fact that I think they put too many billions of dollars towards uh, hydrogen, there are also billions of dollars going to state grants, local grants, and grants to tribal communities centered around a number of topics, whether it's EV charging, uh, grid resilience, um, rural electrification uh, slash clean, clean electrification in rural areas, uh, you know, school bus conversions from polluting diesel to electric, there's a huge uh, array of grants that are going to be flowing in the not-too-distant future to states and local governments and tribes. And I'm just really excited to see what these grants do for communities because they're meant to transition our whole infrastructure, not just roads and bridges. So really excited to see what comes from that. And hopefully you all uh, can help get some of those grants uh, flowing in your in your neck of the woods and make sure you're taking advantage of that. So, um, well, I'm sad that we are out of time, but thank you all so much for being with me today. Thanks for all you're doing and, uh, and happy belated Juneteenth to you and all of our listeners. Thank you so, so much. much. Thanks, guys. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan energy policy firm delivering high-quality research and analysis to help policymakers and regulators pursue a decarbonized energy future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. And finally, I'd like to let folks know about an upcoming event in July. 
Verge Electrify, which is taking place July 26th through 27th, uh, brings together early movers to share learnings and best practices to electrify all sectors of the economy, transportation, buildings, and industry rapidly and equitably. Uh, hosted by Green Biz, you can Google Verge Electrify or visit the show notes for the event information page. As always, a huge thanks to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City. And thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to electrify this. Thank you.